have the incredible privilege to hear from Lisa Gowan this morning. Why don't we welcome her up? Uh, I encourage you to tune in and listen because when Lisa brings a word, she brings a word that only she could bring. And this has a weight and a strength to it. I know it's going to encourage us um, and challenge us. So thanks, Lisa. Good morning. So... I love that song. That's actually the first time I've heard that song. Um, even though Adam's been practicing at home, I tend to zone out. Um, and so essentially today, really, what I'm speaking about is the power of that overwhelming, reckless love of God reaching out to the 99. Um, not at all collaborated intentionally on my behalf, so we'll say that God put that one together, not ads and I, but um, that's what it comes down to. So last time I spoke a couple of months ago, um, I spoke about the pain of trauma in people's lives and why it matters that we consider the restorative justice of God and giving dignity back to people in our lives and in our worlds. And then Mark spoke a few weeks after that about the ache of humanity. And then Josh shared about the woman with the issue of blood and how her healing came when she reached out to touch Jesus' robe when he was on the way to heal Jairus' daughter. And that her doing that made the way for Jairus' daughter to be healed. But also we can look at it as one generation reaching out and touching Jesus, making the way for the next generation to be healed and restored. And then a couple of weeks ago, Swelly spoke about how much God values and cares about his presence on earth. And that as his church, we are the living stones who are called to carry that presence in our lives. So ultimately, I'd planned for this message to be part two in a little thing that I was doing because I had too much for the first one. Um, but I think ultimately it's part five of something bigger that God's leading us on and a journey that God's got us on. So today I'm starting back at where I ended last time. Um, to remind us what the restorative justice of God looks like and what we're called to do in this world. So um, last time I finished off by reading all of Isaiah 58. Just going to read part of it today. A big part of it, but part of it. So from verse 6 to 12. Um, no, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer. Yes, I am here, he will quickly reply. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumours. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will shine as bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. 
That's what God's calling us into. That's the lives he's asking us to live. From the very beginning of time for people here on earth, humanity's brokenness and the break in our relationship with God, something more than punishment has been required. So we've had that point at the beginning where sin has entered in, to use those Christianese terms. There's been a break in, breakdown in the relationship with God. And punishment isn't the response. It's never been about punishment. It's never been enough. There's something more that God's looking for and calling us into. So a punitive justice, um, so a justice that's based on punishment, is a really rough justice. And it will never minister the love and healing that God in Isaiah 58 is calling us into. That sort of rough justice is focused on power struggles, coercion, a justified violence, and just a punishment. None of those things can bring actual healing to anyone involved. It's task-focused, and it produces a lack in people's lives through isolation and the impacts of violence. That's not to say that there are no consequences when people make mistakes and for people's actions. There are. But as the church, we need to have a more mature response. We need to acknowledge that punishment, deprivation, isolation, violence, judgment and religion only serve to re-traumatise people and exacerbate their pain. The justice of God is founded on the premise of mercy and grace. It's not a retribution that requires punishment to balance out the moral scales somehow. God's restorative justice is relationship-focused. It fulfills and it satisfies. It heals and it brings life. And it brings people into wholeness. So one of the main words that's used in the Bible for justice and righteousness is tedesca. Across a variety of Hebrew texts, including the Bible, it carries a variety of meanings, which include deliverance, righteous help, salvation, equity, uprightness, prosperity, and integrity. But the common thread in the way that that word is used is that it's always in a relationship context. It conveys the idea of human well-being or right behaviour, but in the context of relationships. It's not something that happens outside of relationship. A justice that happens inside relationship doesn't sound punitive to me. It sounds like something that can heal. So as we read the Bible through a big picture lens as God's healing strategy for mankind, we can see a focus throughout the words on a restorative justice, not a retributive justice or a punishment. Amos 5.24 states, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Religious activities that happen without justice and righteousness are abhorrent to God. Moreover, the righteous and justice, justice acts that he demands are not the intermittent kind that we just pull up every now and again. Once a year we do our nice little good deed of kindness and justice. It's the kind of justice that rolls down like waters and a never-ending stream. It should be a continual thing throughout our lives. So the, this world, each of us, each of the people around us, are often infected with a brokenness and live in a place of alienation and isolation. 
an enormous part of God's healing strategy is to have a genuine faith community that branches right across the world, and that's us as the church, who live connected to the people around us, not in a state where we're comfortably detached from the pain around us. Rather, we know God's healing love for ourselves and we live life in a way that we're a vessel for that love into the lives of others. A vessel for that love to enter the brokenness and the darkness of the world, of our community and of individual lives that we connect with, being agents for healing wherever that's needed. So as his people commissioned to bring this healing and this restoration back to him and ultimately his wholeness to people's lives, we must carry a message of peace and healing that's shaped by his grace and his mercy, not of condemnation, punishment and fear. We need to live and speak out an authentic peace and love rather than speaking of justifiable violence, punishment, religious expectations and judgment. We need to learn to sit with the pain of the brokenness that's in our world and in lives without ourselves being broken by it. We need to hold a double-sided perspective concerning the wider world and the ache that we see. Recognising the sources of conflict and pain while not being broken and pressed, pressed down by that, knowing that God has promised healing and redemption for each of those lives. So over several years, the psychology and social work kind of fields have focused on a model of trauma-informed care to bring healing and restoration to lives. So trauma-informed care broadly refers to a set of principles that guide and direct how we view the impact of harm, extreme events and abuse on a person's mental, physical and emotional health and well-being. The idea is that if we as professionals can understand the impact of trauma on a life, the way that it rewrites people at a neurobiological level, not just at a psychological level, and the ways that those neurobiological differences can alter genetics, be passed on through the generations, then we can actually help people better. It encourages the support and treatment of the whole person rather than focusing only on treating individual symptoms or specific behaviours. So, a simple analogy. Our brain and our body have been designed to recognise danger, to shut down non-essential functions when we're in danger and to go into fight, flight or freeze mode. We've probably most of us heard of that. When threatened, ultimately we go into survival mode. Most of our brain shuts down and it's just the little back portion here that functions, which is the earliest part of the brain to develop and it is all based on your survival instincts. So ultimately, when we're scared, when we're fearful, when we feel like we're in danger, everything shuts down and we're in survival mode. So we get ready to fight, we get ready to run, or we get ready to withdraw and detach and dissociate completely from what's happening around us. So imagine living with a bear. Not a nice cuddly bear, a cute one like Winnie the Pooh, but a bear out of your very worst nightmares. 
close your eyes for me. This is an enormous bear. The biggest bear you've ever seen. It's as black as the shadows. So it can sneak up without you even knowing it's there. Its claws and its teeth are stained with blood. It's got flesh still hanging off of its claws from its last meal. And its breath smells like death itself. You never know when it's going to attack. You can't predict what it's going to do to you or the other people in your life. And you have no way to escape. In the past, you've been repeatedly attacked and you've repeatedly seen that bear attack others. You are constantly living in survival mode and on the edge of or in terror. Then all of a sudden, the bear's gone. You've been told that the bear is gone, but your brain and your body have been functioning in survival mode for so long that any sound, smell, taste, sight, touch, memory or emotion that is even remotely similar to what you experienced when you were living with the bear send you right back to that place of terror and back into survival mode. You can't get yourself out of that place easily and you're unable to escape the cycle. How does that feel? I can only imagine. So you can open your eyes again. But just think of that. Think of that terror. That anything in a moment can take you back to that, out of your control. Trauma-informed care helps us to understand that. Helps us to understand why people have that reaction. And it helps us to understand and appreciate that for many people, externally, that bear is gone and it's not coming back. But internally, the scar of that bear is written into the way that their brain connections work. For some people, deep into their genetic code, depending on their experiences. That bear is carried in every moment with some people. So understanding this helps us to view people's behaviour, whether it's drug use, promiscuity, or as many of the kids I work with, lashing out with violence, climbing on roofs and throwing things at people, trying to burn houses down literally while they're still in it, as acts of survival, as acts of resistance to the very real danger that they were in and that their brain tells them they're still in when even slightly triggered. The assumption in broader society is that disruptive or dangerous behaviour is willful defiance or disrespect or naughty. The number of times I hear people talk about naughty kids. Kids and adults living this sort of life, they're not naughty. They're dealing with the effects of trauma. And it's very easy as the church to look at that behaviour and kind of go, they're sinning and that's their choice and God doesn't like that behaviour. That doesn't bring healing to a person's life. And my heart today is that we see some people's behaviour differently and we pull back our finger that's pointing in judgement and we reach out our hand instead to help people. People are more than what has happened to them and this sort of trauma-informed 
informed care model is really important, but it doesn't always consider the fullness of a person's life, their relationships and their experiences. It has a tendency to focus on the harm and the injury and the trauma without going beyond that. We need to understand trauma to bring healing and justice, but on its own it's incomplete. So there's an emerging focus on what's called healing-centred relationships. A healing-centred relationship approach involves cultural, spiritual, collective healing and bringing people into civic action and relationships. It views trauma not simply as an individual isolated experience, but it highlights the way in which trauma and healing are experienced collectively in a community and the broader impacts of trauma on the people around. So a healing-centred approach to addressing trauma needs a different question that goes beyond, well, what happened to you to what's right with you? It views people who've been exposed to trauma as agents in the creation of their own well-being, not just victims in traumatic events. So this approach is similar to a South African term, Ubuntu, I'm going to say. U-B-U-N-T-U. So if you can figure out a better way to say that, please tell me after. Say that again. Ubuntu. Alrighty. We'll go with that. I don't have to say it again, so you can just remember that one. So this means that humanness is found through interdependence, collective engagement and service to others. It's through a healing-centred approach and that interdependence, collective engagement and service to others, that the neurological influence of the bear can finally start to be reduced. When I think about those things, I'm immediately drawn to the parallels of restorative justice and the healing that's found in Jesus. When I think of the healing that God's called us into and the way that he moves in the Bible and the way that that's focused on relationships, I can know all these other psychological, social work, theoretical frameworks. But when I, I hear about healing-centred relationship approaches, I just think, oh, that's the way God's designed healing to work and it's right there in that book in front of us and has been the whole time. So being able to consider the impacts of trauma in our interactions with people, it can revolutionise our interpretation of our own previous behaviour as well as other people's choices. And hopefully, it leads us to a perspective that seeks out mercy and grace over judgment. That's really important because it helps us to redefine issues that we see around us as an ache in people's lives and to move away from blame and judgment. So this healing approach is focused on seeing more than a person's worst moments. It sees people as more than they see themselves. And it sees the, sees the collective ache of humanity and looks at our interconnectedness as humans to bring healing in the midst of darkness. To me, that feels a whole lot like how the community of faith that God dreamed of should look. So if we look at Jesus' ministry as a model for our own lives, we can see that we are called to love people, to see the ache, to bring healing in broken lives and contexts, 
and to offer forgiveness that restores relationships. Jesus' ministry focused on addressing brokenness and alienation in his generation, and we're called to the same. In Mark 2.17, Jesus quite bluntly says that he came for those, not for those who are well and who are righteous, but for those who need healing. He had a special concern for the well-being of the vulnerable, excluded and oppressed, and he still does. So today, I'm going to focus on what happened when Jesus' presence was amongst those who were suffering and those who were in darkness. He was here to address the ache of humanity for restoration to God. And that is still the main ache of humanity that underlies every traumatic event that happens and therefore every symptom and behaviour that we see. But are we willing to see past people's circumstances to offer them his love and restorative justice? Are we willing to go into that darkness to bring God's light? Because it's intimidating and it's scary. But that's what we're called to do. So we see Jesus heal people who were blind, deaf, mute, paralysed, had leprosy, experienced seizures, other conditions. Pretty consistently in the cultures that we read about in the Bible, these sorts of conditions were viewed as a deviation from God's perfect creation. They were viewed as diseases with a strong connection to the idea that they were a punishment for sin, either of that person or of their ancestors. It was associated with people living in unbelief, in ignorance. It bestowed on people a lack of worth and people were forced to live on the fringes of society. These people were often outcast considered unclean and were alone. I know there's many people in our society who live in that place. When Jesus healed people who had these conditions, he saw the physical symptoms that needed healing. But in healing their bodies, he was really addressing that internal ache for restoration to God. And through addressing that physically and internally, People were then positioned to be restored back to their community and the community itself could undergo a healing as the testimony of Jesus' form of justice and love spread. In Matthew 8, verses 1 to 4, we read of a man with leprosy who approaches Jesus and kneels before him saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. When I hear that statement, I hear hope waging war against the fear of rejection. If you are willing, for me carries a tone of pain, of uncertainty, of doubt, but of desperation for something more. This man would not have been touched since he developed leprosy due to being considered unclean. And here Jesus touches him and says, I am willing and be clean. I can't even imagine the power of those words into that man's life, uttered with incredible grace and with the absence of judgment. They would have ministered such far greater healing than anything that's just skin deep. Jesus then tells him to go and show himself to the priest and offer the gifts required by the law of Moses. And by doing this, Jesus ensures that culturally this man's going to be accepted back into society again. It's no good having clean skin 
if society is still going to reject you because of what you were. So Jesus addresses the psychological and the cultural needs here as well, not just the skin issue. So this man was able to experience a healing to his sense of worth, to his dignity, and to have the social barriers and isolation that he'd lived with for who knows how long removed so he could be restored to a rightful place in his community. In John 5, we read of a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. It's interesting the use of the word invalid here. I didn't look into the background of it. But invalid, invalid, no worth. This man had been living without worth and who knows what forms of physical disabilities we did not hold for 38 years. That's my entire life plus a little bit. He'd been lying on the steps of the pool at Beth Bethesda. Um, I said that correctly every time I practice this and now I can't say it. Um, where people went for healing because the angel would come and stir the water for a long time. But he tells Jesus that no one would help him into the water. He was alone and unwell in the midst of a crowd of people who were also alone and unwell and seeking healing and restoration in anything they could find. Jesus sees him and he heals him. This man, we're told that this man was now able to walk and he re-entered society after lying on the steps at this pool for who knows how long and experiencing these disabilities for 38 years. It doesn't matter how long someone has been down and out for. doesn't matter how long they've been trapped in darkness. Jesus cares and he wants to go there and he can bring them out of it. He's not going to disregard them because they look like they've been trapped for a long time. Why should we? I know when I was a teenager, one of my friends was Christian. I was into everything else, quite literally. Um, and yet out of our friends, I was the one who became Christian. And I remember her talking to me and her mum talking to me. And she was almost crying and she was just saying, I'm sorry I never told you. I, just, I never thought you'd listen. You seemed so set in your ways. I should have told you. And I think it's really easy for us to do that with people in our lives, to go, oh, they're so set in their ways, they're not going to listen. Love them. When the opportunity comes, tell them. It's the only way things are going to move. For every personalised account of healing that I read through the Gospels, contained a bit of a pattern. Jesus sees the need of the person physically, psychologically and socially and he's moved with compassion. He heals the physical issue and in doing so addresses the psychological and social ache of alienation by restoring people back to community and relationship. That's what our world needs. I don't think any of us here would disagree with that. And if you do, come talk to me afterwards. I'll convince you otherwise. We frequently read of Jesus healing people who are described as being possessed by demons in the Bible. 
I'm not going to get into the theology of all of that. But Mark 5 tells us of the man living naked amongst the tombs, where day and night he would call out and cut himself with stones. He used to be chained hand and foot, but would tear the chains apart and break the irons on his feet. So instead, he lived isolated, alienated and rejected in the place of death. Legally, thankfully, it's not considered appropriate to bind people in chains anymore. But the stigma associated with things like domestic violence, disability, mental health, drug and alcohol addiction, criminal reoffending, is no less binding and no less heavy. Through this man's encounter with Jesus, he was restored to his right mind. He left the tombs in the place of death. And he was sent by Jesus to tell them tell the other people how much God had done for him and of his mercy. His mind and his spirit were made right and were made whole. And he had the opportunity now to return to society and retake his place with his family and within other relationships. Some of the biggest aches that people carry, ourselves included, are based in abandonment, rejection, and a lack of self-worth. I know for me personally, they're still the biggest things I struggle with. Often, the things that we see people do in their lives that hurts themselves and or others are strategies that they've developed over time to, develop, to survive that bear that I spoke about in a way that masks or numbs the pain and the fear that they've been living with. Those strategies have worked in the past for them because they don't know the love of God that can set them free. So the fear is numbed, the pain is numbed, so it's a successful strategy and so they keep using it. And that numbing becomes addictive, so therefore the strategy becomes addictive. They don't know how to live without doing that anymore. So we have to remember that. The strategies that people use that we might look at and think, oh my gosh, why are you doing that and get judgmental about, have worked in the past for those people because they haven't known there's another option. So there are times that we see Jesus directly speak into emotional aches that manifest in probably some fairly unhelpful behaviours in the Bible. So in John 4, he asked the Samaritan woman to draw him water from the well. This is unusual for several reasons. So according to cultural standards, Jesus shouldn't have spoken to her due to the deep standing dislike and distrust between the Jews and the Samaritan people. Far less should he have accepted a favour from her, a drink of water or food. Also, rabbis or people considered teachers would not speak to women in public, not even their own wives. Also, she's at the well alone at an unusual time of the day for drawing water. Usually the women would all go to the well together at the same time of day, but this wasn't the case for her. So I wonder, is she socially isolated? because of her relationship choices that we learn of later as we read about her. 
But in spite of all these things, Jesus sees her and his love for her renders all the cultural standards that separate people null and void in their interaction. He sees that she is empty, that she is thirsty, and that she's filling that gap with other things that aren't helping her. He knows everything that she has done in her life, that she's filling that ache with the relationships, and he still loves her, just like he loves us. Are we going to let our judgment of other people's actions stop us from approaching them, speaking to them, loving them? We read similar responses to women who have been cast down in society due to relationship choices in John 8 and Luke 7. Now, this is not directed towards women in particular. These are just the examples I've pulled out of the Bible, so please don't interpret that it this way. We have to remember that in the cultural context, men and women were treated very differently, and so what's written in the Bible is probably influenced by some of that. In John 8, we read of the woman who's been caught in the act of adultery and she's brought before him for judgment. Note that the man who was caught in adultery with her wasn't brought for judgment. Nonetheless, the men who bring her test Jesus by quoting the law of Moses that commands them to stone her. Are we like those men, quick to pass judgment? forgetting where we've come from ourselves or how we've all at one point in our life been one choice away from a life with Jesus. I often reflect on the lives of the people that I work with and I hear their story and I see how easily their story could have been mine if I'd made just a handful of choices differently. That could be me living with decades of drug addiction that could be me trapped in a violent relationship. That could be me trapped in the darkness of my own mind. Jesus challenges the men who bring this woman to him, woman to him, saying that if any one of them who is without sin is there, they should throw the first stone. They all leave. And we're told that Jesus does not condemn her either. But he directs her to live a different life. I imagine that her personal choices and interactions in society would have been different from that moment and that she would have actually been empowered to live differently because of that grace Jesus showed her in that encounter. And we need to remember when we're thinking about the love and the restorative justice of God that none of us are without issue. In Luke 7, we read of the sinful woman who overcome with her love of Jesus anoints his feet with incredibly expensive perfume. Her willingness to give Jesus this treasured perfume in her alabaster box is her recognition of his great love and her great need for him. The people who he's with, however, only see her sin, not her ache and her need. But Jesus sees beyond her behaviours and he restores her heart saying, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Earlier in Luke 7, we read an account that I find particularly beautiful. As Jesus enters the town of Nain, there's a funeral procession exiting, carrying 
a bier that held the dead son, the only son of a widow. We're told that Jesus' heart went out to her. He touches the bier, telling the young man to get up. We're told that the dead son sat up and began to talk and that Jesus gave him back to his mother. He gave a son back to his mother. He doesn't just restore one life here, he restores a family. How many dead sons and daughters are walking amongst us every day? How many dead mothers and fathers? Jesus' healing and restoration has a ripple effect that spans across the generations. It doesn't matter what someone has done or what they are doing. Jesus sees them, he loves them, and he wants to restore them. It doesn't matter where they're at in life, he wants to be with them. The criminal beside Jesus on the cross asks Jesus to remember him and has promised that he would be in paradise with Jesus that very day. That man didn't have a calling to walk out beyond that day. He wasn't saved for some great work other than for us to be able to read in the Bible 2,000 years later that it doesn't matter what comes next. Jesus loves us in that moment and he wants us with him. No one is too far gone and no one is too far away. Romans 10, 13 to 14 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone telling them? In Australia, children as young as 10 years old can be charged, brought before the court, sentenced and locked behind bars. 10 is the minimum age for juvenile detention in our country. I know of young people who've started using drugs around the age of eight, still using drugs at the age of 14. Children are the most honest barometers of the health of our communities. Their disruptive behavior is a call to action for all of us, to tend to the broken links and the suffering in their lives and in their families' lives with compassion and with wisdom. No matter what you see when you are walking around our beautiful town and our community, you need to know there are too many kids that are hurting that you cannot see and they need us. Suicide kills six men a day in Australia. That's just the men, not the women, not the children, not the adolescents. And that's just the confirmed suicides. So it's 2,438 men who died by suicide confirmed last year. When I last spoke in August, 41 women had been killed in Australia by acts of violence in 2018 so far. When I started preparing this a couple of weeks ago, that total was 58, already seven more than all of 2017. In the first two weeks of October alone, eight women due to died due to domestic violence in a 10-day period. 
strawberries have needles in them and shark, someone gets bitten by a shark and there's a national outcry. But nothing's happening for domestic violence or not enough is happening. Again, as I said last time, this is not just happening outside our churches. There are people trapped in domestic violence and in other difficult situations within our churches and we need to know what to do. There was a survey um, that said that 86% of pastors said that their churches would be a safe haven for someone experiencing domestic violence. In the same survey, I think, 96% of abuse victims who sought help from their churches would not recommend that to other victims. What a disconnect. I don't know the circumstances of the people here today for some of you or for the people who may possibly be listening to this in the future. But it's my hope and prayer, and I know it's Josh and Sayers and the leadership team's hope and prayer at this church, that this would be a safe haven for you no matter what you're facing. So as of, you know, about two weeks ago, October 22, there were 652 refugees and asylum seekers still being held on Nauru where they're being held in conditions that are abusive and completely disregard even the most basic human rights, conditions that have been slammed by other nations and international organisations. 541 of these people, or 83%, have been verified as legitimate refugees, meaning they fled their former homes because they have a well-founded fear of persecution and violence because of who they are, yet still they're held there and some have been there for over five years. So further 88 of these people are still being assessed, but out of all of that number, only 23 have been deemed to not meet the legal requirements for formal refugee status. When I last spoke, I mentioned the 120 children on Nauru, many of whom were starting to be diagnosed with resignation syndrome. Since then, many more children have been brought to Australia for medical treatment, which is amazing. And the last stat that I read said that there's now only 27 children remaining on the island. It's amazing, and I don't want to discredit that. But these kids haven't been brought here by some sudden kindness. In most cases, it was by court orders and against the wishes of the government who put them there and who actually fought in court to keep them there. There are allegations that refugees have been threatened with arrest if they attempt suicide and that parents who take their children to hospital are being told they will be charged with neglect and have their children removed. This has been described as a threat to stop children presenting to hospital because if there's no presentations, there's no problems. The Nauru government denies this and I want to acknowledge that. But there's no one left to know because all of the professional health services have been removed from the island. Now, I acknowledge that there are many different views on refugees and asylum seeker policy, but there has to be a better way. Uh, Adam's got a friend who's a pastor, Jared McKenna, and he recently said, children belong in playgrounds, not prisons. We must remember refugee simply means someone like you and me, only they need safety. Until every child and person finds safety 
were all in captivity. And I think that goes globally. Again, locally, there was a recent newspaper article relating to a South Coast grandfather who's been sentenced to 32 years behind bars for the ongoing abuse of his own grandchildren over 11 years. In March, he was found guilty of 73 out of 77 charges. I'm not going to go into more details about that because I know there's young years in the room. This happened 45 minutes away from us. Helen Keller once wrote, although the world is full of suffering, it is also full of the overcoming of it. So don't be overwhelmed by the darkness. Be moved by compassion into action. Another quote from a guy called Michael Frost. At first, Jesus seemed strange to us, but the more we look, the more we realise that what is really strange is the culture in which we have become content. We have been sleepwalking, but the strangeness of Jesus wakes us up to the world as it should be. I think it's fair to say that we have become content in a world that is in so much pain, separating ourselves from it, but the church was never meant to be separate. There is no us and them, there is just us and an aching humanity. And if we do nothing, that does harm. So another quote, I don't know where this one came from. But if you don't heal what hurt you, you will bleed on people who did not cut you. And that's what we've become content with. A subconscious notion that people bleeding out all over each other is fine as long as it doesn't affect me and my family. I'm not content with that. And neither should you be. We should be the brightest lighthouse in the world. And if this generation's ache is not addressed, how much is the next generation going to bleed? And the generation after that, our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. We can do something now to start stemming that flow. So we have a choice. Are we going to be the crowds who try to drown out the cries for help of blind Bartimaeus sitting outside the city walls, only providing hope and encouragement once we know Jesus has started ministering? Are we going to ignore them before then and hush them, quieten them? Or are we going to be the four friends who go to extreme lengths, lifting our paralysed friends up onto the roof and through the roof to put them in Jesus' midst? Are we going to do, go to whatever lengths we need to, to introduce people to Jesus? This isn't a theology of healing that I'm offering today, in some ways, saying go out and pray for every person to be healed and for demons to leave. There needs to be a wisdom and a balance in what we do. We should pray for people absolutely, but we need to be led by the Holy Spirit to move in wisdom and to be ministering in the areas where God has given us authority. It is, however, a theology of being willing to see the aching people, to go to the dark places in our spheres of influence and to use our personal gifts and relationships 
to respond with compassion to people, serving all people with the mercy, grace and loving kindness of God so he can bring a restorative justice and return people to right relationships within themselves, in the community and with him. Mark 12, 28 recalls a conversation with Jesus about the greatest commandment. A man says to Jesus, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength. And to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus' response to this man is, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So this tells me that a kingdom culture values the way that we love people more than any other type of religious thing we may try to do. Love is the kingdom. So Jared again was recently speaking at a conference and he said, to bandage another's wounds, we need to be close enough to see where they are bleeding. We can't do it from a distance can't be remote and detached. So I saw this on Facebook recently and it's beautiful in its simplicity and says it probably better than I could. If you see someone falling behind, walk beside them. If you see someone being ignored, find a way to include them. If someone has been knocked down, help them back up. Always remind people of their worth. One small act can change a life. The miracle of restoration begins when each of us realise that we have the capacity to ease someone else's pain. In 1 John 4.19, we're told to love each other because he loved us first. To flip it around, we are loved and so we must love. In John 1.4-5, we're told that in him, Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. If people in our world are in darkness, and no one will bring them a light, they are left in darkness. We are called to shine and to illuminate the deepest darkness with a love that can restore with the only love that can restore. So, to come to a close shortly, um, adds if you want to hop up. 1 John 3.16 We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. God's healing plan to send Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice is so much more than a transaction paying the price for our sins. Jesus made the way for us to be restored back to right relationship with God and is the ultimate act of restorative justice. 1 Timothy 2, 5 to 6. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Jesus Christ. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. Psalm 36, 5 to 6 in the message version. God's love is meteoric, his loyalty astronomic, his purpose titanic, his verdicts oceanic. Yet in his largeness, nothing gets lost, 
Not a man, not a mouse slips through the cracks. We are God's answer to minister his restorative justice in this world. A justice that heals, a justice that closes the gaps and the cracks, a justice that is love made public, an Isaiah 58 kind of justice that feeds the hungry and helps those in trouble, a justice where your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. Some of us will rebuild the deserted ruins of our cities, hopefully all of us. Our communities will be rebuilt and homes and lives will be restored. Justice is everyone's business. So my question for you today is, are you willing? Our church mission or church vision, these are out in the foyer. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavours of this earth. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colours in the world. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. It's from Matthew 5 in the Message Version. So we've broken that down as a church into three things to break down the walls between the church and the community, to help people flourish and grow and to reach a broken world. How can we do anything less? So I'm going to pray and I recognise, you know, there may be some people here that as I've spoken, you've kind of gone, oh, that ache is in me. I, I have never connected with Jesus there's that ache for that restoration back to God that I've recognised or an ache from other experiences in your life. So I'm going to pray for you for this to be the first step of your healing journey with Jesus. But I'm also going to pray for the rest of us that God will help us to see what we can do in our lives. That God will help us to see and interpret the ache according to his heart. And he'll help us to respond in love. So if you close your eyes for me. God, I pray for each one of us here today. You know our hearts, you know our spirits, you know our minds and you know our bodies. God, for those who have recognised that ache within them today, I pray for you to minister. That you would minister salvation and peace and wholeness, Lord God, where there is lack I pray that those who have experienced previous trauma and are still on that journey of healing would come into a fresh season of healing with you today, Lord God, that you would lead them on this next part of the journey. And God, I pray for each of us that you would open our eyes, our ears and our hearts to see the world differently, to see the world through your eyes that you would help us to live a life of justice, made, making love public, that you would help us to have wisdom and to walk in your spirit and to minister your love to the world around us, that we would not live detached amidst the brokenness, but you, that you would give us the courage and the wisdom 
to minister into the darkness of the lives around us, that you would cover us, that you would continue to make us whole and in doing so help us to minister wholeness and your justice and salvation to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Lisa. I did say only Lisa could bring a message like that, so that was incredible. And I think there was a weight, hey, with what Lisa brought. And um, I think that weight, may that not weigh us down, but may that compel us to go out to see salt and light. May it compel us to see things differently, react differently, respond differently. I love what she spoke about trauma response. I got that wrong. What is it, Lisa? Trauma-informed care and the healing-centered approach. How good is that? That that is Jesus, and may we go out um, with that. And Rose and I were just thinking, and why don't we, as the band plays in the background? Uh, I know Lisa brought up lots of different things that we can pray into. Why don't you grab someone next to you, whether it's your family or friend, or get into groups, and that, whether it's praying for Nauru or praying for people experience domestic violence or the suicide rates of, of men in our nation, or maybe you know a family or a young person who needs prayer, or maybe you need prayer, but why don't we take that first response as the church to actually see a difference come and pray for breakthrough. So why don't we do that now if the band want to play in the background, but just get into groups and let's pray for our community, for the communities.